From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Day 26 at the Idaho Legislature and the uh, ongoing standards standoff, standards stalemate, standards stare down. I can come up with headlines all day and we could probably wind up using all of these headlines at, at some point. There'll be session. time. Yeah, at, at this rate, <laughs> keep them in the bank. They may uh, get used. A lot to get to, and we will get to the latest on the standards uh, debate. Eventually. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it eventually, too. <laughs> but a lot to catch up on this week, and starting with a story that we were tipped off to on Wednesday uh, regarding a tort claim against uh, State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra. Yeah, Kevin, you took the lead uh, on reporting this, but one of Superintendent Ibarra's former directors, Kelly Brady, <laughs> filed a tort claim uh, against... Uh, Yubara and the State Department of Education alleging that she was terminated after cooperating with a workplace investigation, uh, talking about whistleblower activities. You were the uh, the lead reporter on the on yeah. the case, with, and, and let us know what you found out. And we both wrote about it. We both read the the tort claim. Um, let's first of all talk about the legalese here. A tort claim is not a lawsuit; it is a precursor to a possible civil lawsuit. Uh, this is what you have to file if you are contemplating uh, seeking civil damages against a public agency. So at this point, all we know at this point is what was filed in the tort claim, the four pages of the tort claim, but fairly juicy allegations in the claim. Uh, Kelly Brady was somebody we both knew. We both had seen her at the State House. She had been a fairly prominent figure in the State Department of Education because she was taking on the mastery education issue one of Sherry Barr's top priorities. She was the director of mastery-based education, and that's exactly right. Uh, that is one of Superintendent Ibarra's top priorities. She's tried to uh, launch the mastery-based education network across the state. She mentions it during her budget presentations every year. She mentioned it on the uh, election campaign trail yeah. in, in, in 2000. This is still something she brings up all the time. I mean, mastery is a big topic for, for Superintendent Ibarra. So let, let's kind of walk people through the tort claim. And again, you can read the whole tort claim on our website. You can read my story, and we have the, uh, the tort claim embedded. It's only a four-page document, so it's a pretty quick read if you want to get the full details. But I'll walk you through the basic chronology here. Yep. Kelly Brady joined uh, Abara's team pretty soon after uh, Abara's first election, uh, back in 2015. And she became the lead person on Mastery, took on some added responsibilities along the way, and according to the tort claim, and again, I, I want to emphasize this, that at this stage of the game, Ibarra's staff isn't talking, they haven't responded, uh, the department has uh, until mid-April to file a formal response right. to the tort claim. So at this point, we have only one side of the story. That's, That's one of the limitations of covering any legal proceeding like this. But here's what we know from the side of the story that was presented in the tort claim, Kelly Brady's side of the story. She says that she was hired, she was given glowing reviews, given added responsibilities, and everything was going along like that until March, when Brady participated in an investigation, a separate investigation into workplace misconduct within the State Department of Education. Brady says that she was asked by the investigator whether she felt that there was a hostile work environment in the SDE and whether Superintendent Ibarra contributed to that environment. And Brady said that she said, yes, that in her view, 
Ibarra contributes to that environment because everybody feels like they're afraid to be that they're going to lose their jobs. Yeah, the quote was just reading out of the tort claim, quote, answering truthfully, Miss Brady indicated that she did feel as though the environment at SDE was hostile under the direction and supervision of Superintendent Ibarra and that people were fearful of losing their jobs, close quote. So that's March. Now the chronology really picks up and the tort claim lays out this timeline where the relationship between Brady and Ibarra deteriorated over those uh, final five months. In April, Brady says that Ibarra started to ignore her, shunned her in public meetings, ignored her in staff meetings. In May, the department hires a co-director to share Brady's duties. According to the tort claim, this new hire had less experience and was a close friend of Peter McPherson. Um, Ibarra's chief deputy. Ibarra's chief deputy. So June, the new uh, co-director, Todd Driver, begins work at the department and uh, is quoted as saying, according to the court claim, Driver is telling people that, that he is, quote, here to clean up Kelly Brady's mess. So that's another, you know, kind of, you know, incendiary quote that you get out of this tort claim. And in June, Brady says that she was re- reassigned, that she was covering only her mastery duties at that yep. point. Now you fast forward to July 22nd, Brady says that she was placed on administrative leave because the SDE was investigating a hostile work environment complaint against Brady. Now you fast forward to August 12th. Uh, Brady said she returned to work and was handed a termination letter that says, and we'll quote from the tort claim, quote, while the investigation has not concluded, this letter is to inform that it is in the agency's best interest to terminate your employment from the State Department of Education. So very detailed, very stark timeline that's laid out here in the tort claim that that suggests that from the time Brady spoke about what she was seeing in the workplace environment, uh, that her her work situation deteriorated, her relationship with uh, Superintendent Ibarra deteriorated. That's what's laid out in this tort claim. The tort claim does not specifically seek a, a, a sum of money in terms of damages. It does suggest that um, you know that Brady has lost uh, about thirty-eight thousand dollars in wages since her firing in August, and was, that she was planning to stay on the job for three more years. So, as far as financial damages, if this gets to a lawsuit, I mean, we get more of a precise figure if it hits that point. Again. The way tort claims work, uh, the state has until mid-April. They have 90 days from the the day of the filing. This was filed on January 14th. The state has until about mid-April to file a response. We'll stay on top of that. And when that response is filed, if there is a response filed, we'll have a follow-up story. All we know at this point is what's laid out in the tort claim. Pretty juicy stuff. Pretty interesting stuff. And, you know, we were talking about before we turned on the microphone. Kelly Brady is not the first person to leave the department from a high-ranking position and leave abruptly. You know, whether they resigned abruptly or were flat-out terminated, we've seen high-ranking folks leave this department abruptly and suddenly before in in Navarra's five years now in office. Right, we have. And and, and Kelly Brady was not the first former department head to complain either, but 
Some of the department directors and department heads that we've seen depart suddenly over the last two, three years, that includes Scott Cook, it includes Allison Westfall, the former spokesperson for the State Department of Education, and informs, it includes former State Senator Tim Corder, who was acting as sort of a legislative liaison for Superintendent Ybarra and then very suddenly right. left. And, and Corder great. was one of, first, you know, of yeah. our first hires. I mean, he was brought on shortly after Ibarra's election back in 2014 to be the legislative face of that department. And he didn't last very long and he left very abruptly. So we've seen these, we've seen this kind of turmoil before, but this is the first time that we've seen it reach the point of a tort claim and, you know, potentially uh, start moving towards a possible lawsuit. And I just want to be really clear that you reached out to Ybarra's office, the State Department of Education, for a comment on this matter this week. They declined, uh, right. as it, is their right. And, and as is standard it's, practice. Yeah, I mean, almost every public agency uh, does not publicly comment on a pending lawsuit or, right. or, or, or an active lawsuit. So I, I didn't expect a comment, which is why we will keep a close eye out for uh, any formal response from the state, because that would give us a sense of where the state is coming down on this issue and, and give us a sense of where this tort claim might proceed and whether this uh, is going to head into court. So very definitely a developing story, but one that uh, we broke on Wednesday. Yeah, and we thought it was important enough to share. It is a little bit of a a complicated story at this point. If you want to get caught up at all, uh, you can head back to IdahoEdNews.org. That is the homepage on the 29th. You published the story, Former SDE Director Files Whistleblower Claim Against Ybarra. So if you want to get caught up on all the details, or like you mentioned, if you want to read the tort claim for yourself and, and decide what it says, yeah. we embedded that in the story. So that's there. Right, uh, it's all there. Review. So you can get caught up on, on that tort claim. We did start to see some movement on some legislation this week, uh, legislation that's going to pertain to education. So we're going to kind of try to get you caught up on several bills that we saw, several bills that surfaced, starting with one that passed the House on Thursday. You were on the House floor when this passed. Yeah, this is, and, and if it sounds familiar, that's because it is, but what it is, this was pushed by Representative Heather Scott, Republican from North Idaho, and the idea is, is that she... If this bill passes into law, it would prevent taxing districts, such as school districts, from running a bond issue after it fails for 11 months is, is the legal language, but it would be one year. Right. Uh, the net effect if would be if a school district or any other taxing agency runs a bond issue and it fails, they would have to wait a year to run it again. Representative Scott who brought a similar bill that passed the House in 2018 and was never considered in the Senate. Uh, similar bill, similar reason. She said there are aggressive taxing districts uh, that over and over and over again bring these bond issues to their patrons and just don't no, don't take no for an answer is the right. way that Representative Scott presented that on the House floor. But there was the House was divided. It passed comfortably, something like forty-two to twenty-one, or it passed fairly comfortably. Not uh, quite a party line vote. You got a handful of Republicans vote against it on the floor. But there was a lot of concern from people opposed to this bill that number one, it ties the hands of a school board if they're dealing with a significant growth issue, or perhaps if they have unsafe facilities that have right. deteriorated mm -hmm. and are damaged and need to be rebuilt. Bond issue is the only way, really, to build facilities for schools. And so they're saying schools dealing with unprecedented growth or a safety concern because of damaged or unsafe facilities, that could push them 
in a real bind. Other people looked at it from more of a philosophical point of view and said, and this was Ryan Kirby, a Republican from New Plymouth, a yeah. retired school superintendent. And one of the handful of Republicans. One of the handful of Republicans who voted against it said, you know what, in the state of Idaho, we call ourselves a local control state right up until the moment that we're not about local control, yeah. that we are telling these local entities what they can do. And I think some of the context is important. You know, Representative Scott painted a picture of districts doing this over and over and over again. We want to note that under state law, there are only four days throughout the year where it's even possible to hold uh, an election. And she was inaccurate on the House floor. I mean, she, she, not she, everything she, she said was, was correct. So there's only four days uh, when you can have an election. Off the top of my head, I want to say that's March, May, August, and November. Yep. Those are the only four days. There are a handful of very special, obscure uh, exceptions, but four days throughout the year. And she said that the Idaho Falls School District had run a bond that failed in January 2020, and they're going to turn right around and run it again in May 2020. That's not correct. That's not right. accurate. May, January 2020 is this month. The Idaho back. Falls School District <laughs> did not run a failed bond issue this month. Because they, they are couldn't. Because they can't. They are looking at running one in May, and they have run bond issues uh, as recently as 2018, but they did not run one this month, and that was inaccurate. So I covered the House State Affairs Committee meeting where this came up earlier in the week and passed on a party line vote. Some interesting testimony yeah. on uh, in that committee from Treasure Valley school trustees and school administrators. And one of the more interesting, um, some of the more interesting testimony I thought came from Craig Woods. He is now the uh, superintendent in the Emmett School District, but he was, he was the former superintendent in the Notice School District. And he talked about Notice's attempts to pass a bond issue to replace an elementary school. And he, he said that in, in the spring or summer of 2014, uh, Notice ran a bond issue to replace an elementary school. They got about 63% of the vote, I think he said. Fell short of the two-thirds supermajority. Came back in November of that year, so just a few months later. Um, proposed to move the school site, the new school site, to a different part of their property because uh, you know, they were hearing from patrons that uh, there was a concern about location. Ran it again, Failed again, again in that 63% range, you know, a majority, but not a supermajority. So they ran it again in the spring of 2015. So this would be the third time that they ran this bond issue inside of a year. So it is kind of a repeat bond issue, if you look at it that way. The third time around, notice officials told patrons, okay, we've heard you about your concerns about the old school, the old school building. You want to make sure that we... Tear it down. If, if we get a new school, we're going to tear down the old school. We promise we'll do that. That pledge, he said, was enough to convince voters to come around to give the bond issue two-thirds support and pass it. And he, he said to the committee, this was an example where we did listen to our patrons. Yeah, we did run this uh, bond issue three times, but we listened to patrons. We came back with a different proposal. We were responsive to, to community concerns. And his point is, this is happening right now. This idea that uh, school districts are simply running the same bond issue over and over, not listening to their patrons, uh, he, you know, he painted a very different scenario from his experience in notice, and he talked about you know that Emmett is going to face potentially a bond issue itself because it's got a, a school in Ola, uh, rural Gem County that they can't use right now. So they've got kids uh, learning. I think he said in the community center, and he wondered. 
Now, how does that work? Is that an emergency? Does that, you know, you know, what happens if we fail a, a bond issue and we can't replace the school in OLA? How, how long do we have to wait? So you have, you know, trustees and you have administrators opposing this piece of legislation. You have the school boards association oppose this legislation. We'll see what happens on the Senate side because, you know, two years ago, similar bill passed the House, stalled out in the Senate. So we'll see what happens next. Yeah, it's House Bill 347. If you want to keep track of it, the vote to pass out of the House was 48 uh, to 21. It was a little bit off on the earlier count. Sorry about that. Uh, we'll continue to follow it. But I thought, it, I believe it was Representative Sally Toon, a Democrat from Gooding, looked into electoral data. And she identified 16 instances over the past 18 years mm -hmm. where this happened. And so she said it appears, I, I haven't double-checked her research, but uh, it appears that it happens about once a year. Right, and that sounds fairly similar to the numbers that Karen Echeverria from the School Boards Association presented in committee. The point that they're both making is... So it's not just hundreds of times. This isn't happening. This isn't a rampant issue. And you still have the very high bar of the supermajority for a bond issue to pass in the first place, and that's important context. Like you said, similar bill passed the House under similar levels of support two years ago, was never taken up into the Senate, but we'll watch House Bill 347 and see if it goes anywhere and continue to cover the debate if it does move along. So a couple of bills surfaced in the Senate Education Committee, which has been kind of slow in terms of introducing bills or debating bills. One bill that got held, but an idea that may still come back, is uh, an idea from Senator Stephen Thane from Emmett that would allow parents to put together a more flexible school schedule if their elementary school students are a year ahead of their classmates. Uh, lawmakers seem to like the idea, they seem to like the concept, but we're concerned about uh, some of the details in the legislation, the Idaho Education Association. Uh, said they were concerned that the metric used to determine whether kids are a year ahead of schedule seems to be mostly based in standardized yeah. tests. So that bill got held, but uh, Chairman Dean Mortimer urged you know, senators and the IEA to work on some new language and urged them to work on it fairly quickly and get a new bill uh, to present to the, uh, the committee in the next few days because uh, Senate education can only see new bills uh, in the next week or so. Until uh, February 10th, I want to say. That's just a week from Monday. Yeah, it's, it's coming by pretty quickly. I mean, so they're a little bit under the gun in terms of introducing new bills in the Senate Education Committee. Now we've seen that they can work around that. They can introduce a bill in another committee, kick it back into Senate Ed. But the point being, uh, Mortimer and Thane both want to get this bill moving along in, in a different form. So we'll keep an eye on that and see if we have a new version Speaking of a new version of a bill, speaking of a recycled bill, uh, another RS, uh, another new bill introduced in Senate education this uh, just on Thursday to address the longstanding debate over how to pay for driver's education. We laugh because we've been covering this. It seems like uh, this has come up every year. Uh, how to try to get school districts more money to offset the cost of driver's ed. Uh, this would increase the payment to schools to cover most of the costs of drivers. Ed, similar bill um, flunked its road test <laughs> in the House. It passed the Senate easily last year, failed on the House floor. You know, so that's kind of the backdrop. And this is a very similar bill to the one that failed in the House a year ago. So it's starting in the Senate. 
I, I would assume that that bill will come back to the Senate for a hearing uh, in, in committee, and then we'll, we'll watch it. That's one of those deals that, as someone who watches the legislative session every day, we were surprised to find a handful of seemingly simple things that are exceedingly complicated mm -hmm. when they reach the legislature. This driver's license reimbursement fee bill is one of them. Especially license plates can be another one of them. But be really a treat of watching the legislature is these seemingly simple routine matters uh, that tie everybody in knots. And so it wouldn't seem controversial on the surface, uh, but boy, is it. And, and, well, and when they frame it as, a, as an expansion of government or a tax increase... Uh, then that really hurts its chances in well, the House. And we're having some fun with it here, but for school districts and for It's charters, probably not it, a laughing it's, matter. It's not a laughing matter because we are talking about some serious money. Yeah. Um, what the sponsors of the bill are saying is that you've got about $4.9 million sitting in this state fund that you and I pay for. We put our money in to this fund when we buy our new driver's license. A portion of your driver's license fee goes into this fund to help pay for driver's education in the schools. Um, the fund is sitting there with like close to $5 million, according to the sponsors, and they're saying that that's money that could be you know, handed yeah. back to the schools to offset the cost of driver's ed, could help uh, schools offset some of the cost for students and parents. Could make driver's ed more widely available, potentially. Um, and so, so, that's, so that's the argument. There's a dollars and cents argument here that does affect the schools and does affect students. And like you say, the, the you know, the point of would it make driver's education more accessible for students, more available for students, the debate will begin again. And yep. on other legislative issues, we, we finally, finally had, had a couple of bills introduced in the House Education Committee, two of them, in fact. I mean, we're, they're just uh, they're just plowing through new uh, new legislation. <sighs> yeah, we're, here we are, end of the fourth legislative week. I believe today's the 29th day of the legislative session. We've had two bills in House Education. Uh, both came forward in the last week, and but they're not the big, high-priority, divisive things that we saw were going to be coming uh, at the beginning of the session. So what they've dealt with, they had uh, a bill uh, introduced earlier to move the start of the school year back uh, to the Tuesday after Labor Day mm -hmm. for every school yep. district. Uh, we'll see if that gets a hearing. It was sort of pitched in frustration uh, to apparently accommodate state fair schedules and the tourism calendar yeah. over the mm -hmm. summer. So we'll see how that goes over. Uh, a second bill came out of House Ed Wednesday or Thursday of this week, pushed by Representative Bill Gosling out of Moscow. And that has to do with military families who are constantly moving across the country. If they get an assignment and they know they will be uh, reassigned to Idaho and taking their family to Idaho, it would establish residency purposes uh, for enrollment in schools, but really what it seemed to be doing is, is to allow military families to have an opportunity to get involved with some of those charter school uh, lotteries, uh, even if uh, they hadn't set foot in Idaho but knew they would be moving to Idaho or knew they would be assigned to Idaho during the next school year. It was designed to give a heads up to school districts and charters that they are coming uh, to aid in the registration process and to possibly save a spot in some charter school lotteries if they were so interested. Mm -hmm. But we haven't seen the big ones uh, that we knew we were going to expect this year. We haven't seen a funding formula bill. We haven't seen the sex ed bill. We haven't seen a bill about uh, transgender student athletes, which we have been told 
uh, will be coming from Representative Barbara Ehart. Nothing about teacher salaries. Nothing about teacher salaries or accountability. Um, Nothing really out of the task force. But I do want to say the session has more or less played out so far how we thought it would. And that's because Houseed is still mired in this rules and standards debate. And we anticipated that this would take up would take a lot of oxygen out of the room for the first several weeks of the legislative session. And boy, has it. No kidding. Um, As you know, just quick refresher, House Education has spent considerable resources holding divisive hearings over the past month over common core aligned standards in both math and English language arts, as well as a separate slate of standards, academic science standards. Those were divisive hearings. We covered them. But House Ed has not mentioned the standards or taken action on them since January 22nd. And they have put bills, new bills, basically on the back burner to address rules. And this week I did kind of an interesting story finding out that the Senate and leadership are putting pressure on House Education Mm -hmm. to get moving on these rules to take action because everything else is sort of waiting for this to fall in line before moving forward. The Senate, I talked to Senate Chair Dean Mortimer, and he said over and over again, we feel like we've been very patient. We feel like the House has scrutinized these rules at length. Now we are ready for some action so we can make a decision and we can get on with the legislative session and start, I don't know, legislating. Yeah, it, it's it's getting a little bit more pointed. I mean, yeah. I, think, I think Mortimer's remarks to you this week were, were a little bit more direct. Uh, I, I think he's trying to be very gentle and very you know diplomatic about it when I spoke to him for Rideau Reports the week yeah. before. I mean, he made it clear that, you know, they're waiting on the House and he seemed willing to wait on the House. But, you know, another week has passed and, you know, it's, yeah, we're waiting on the House, but we're getting a little tired of waiting on the House. Well, next next week, like I said, it's going to be the fifth week of the legislative session. And the Senate Education Committee, although there are workarounds, faces a February 10th deadline to introduce new bills. And I know that the senators would like a lot of their bills to start in the Senate Education Committee, not another committee, not the House Education Committee. And so they do feel like we wanted to support this process. We wanted to let you scrutinize these rules. We wanted to give a voice to the public who has concerns. They feel like they've done that, and now they're ready to act. And then, oh, by the way, this matters because of the timing issue, but also because... In order to, if they were talking about seriously repealing these standards from the books, both the House and Senate would need to agree. We do sort of expect that the House is going to take a very serious effort to repeal some or all of the academic standards. But in order to remove them from the books, as we've talked about, the Senate would have to go along with it. And so that that's the unknown mm-hmm. at, at this point. And so the Senate wanted to let the House act. But if the Senate's patience runs out, and if the Senate goes ahead and acts, and let's say the action the Senate took was to approve the standards, to leave them in place as the status quo, nothing the House does will matter. Right. And then we're back to the same uh, Chasing our tail <laughs> between the House and the Senate over this rules procedure where the House feels frustrated that the Senate can override uh, the House's wishes, uh, where, where the Senate feels pretty comfortable with the rules as is. Yeah. That's why we're in this rules review, because the two houses, the two chambers could not agree on a path forward on rules last year. Still haven't agreed on a path forward on rules this year. Uh, Bill Spence from the Lewiston Tribune had a, a piece about that earlier this week, saying, you know, there's still no agreement in place. So, so we, we don't know yet. We have a pretty good 
hunch right. that the House Education Committee is going to take a run at uh, editing these standards. I think it's fair to say that odds are that Senate education is more likely to stick with the science standards as is. We don't, you know, we don't know that for for an absolute fact, but we know where they were just two years ago. Um, and we have had complicated, divisive hearings over standards, particularly science standards, in four of the last five legislative sessions. And I think some of those senators just want to move on, just want to move forward and not look back constantly. I, I think that's definitely the, the tone that we're getting from Dean Mortimer. I mean, you know, he, he said, when I asked him last week, you know, what kind of hearing do you think you're going to have on science standards? He made it pretty clear. We had a big hearing about science standards two years ago. We feel like we've heard that issue. And mind you, Senator Mortimer did not approve the science standards he as written. Against he, them. I, I think philosophically on some of these issues on the science standards, he may be in line with where some of the House members are. But, but the I think process he's looking at is it and a saying, mess. We've been here before. The process is an absolute you know, mess. I, I, you know, what he's saying without really saying it is we had our debate. We had our say. I had my vote. The committee went a different way. That's how things go sometimes. You know, I, I think the patience on the Senate side is starting to to wear a little bit thin. And, you know, it, it would take both houses to right. agree on any kind of change in the rules. So we'll, we'll keep watching it. And that's where we're going to be to some degree next week, I'm sure. Maybe we'll have more clarity about the, the situation by this time next week when we're back for another podcast. I think there's a chance. But don't ban. But don't ban. <laughs> I think there's a chance House Education could take up the academic standards as early as Tuesday of next week. But they've sort of suggested they would do it earlier and then held off before. I still sensed a lot of confusion, I think might be the best word, about how all the old existing omnibus rules interact with the new pending rules that are coming forward. Uh, some clear confusion over which do we need to address first? How do they work together? Why in the heck are we seeing all these rules in the first place? Um, and, but I don't know. But I, I also think that it's driving the action in the session so far. I, and, and going back to your interview with Senator Dean Mortimer from last week on Idaho Reports, that struck me as a guy in his final legislative session who would much rather take a look forward at doing something with the funding formula right, or, with, on for or with teacher pay or pay for uh, non-certified staff, some other type of issue rather than the standards. Right. Yeah. And, you know, just to kind of try to speculate a little bit and maybe put this into perspective uh, in, in terms of things that we, we see happen between the House and Senate from time to time, you know. At the end of the session, we always seem to hear discussion about the hostage bill, the mm -hmm. bill that one, that either the House or the Senate doesn't act on to exert leverage over the other chamber. Right. And I almost kind of wonder at some level, are the, the academic standards kind of you know, hostage legislation at this point where the longer the House hangs on to it, the more leverage they think that that gives them in the, the broader dispute over rules and administration of rules. Because... Yeah, you know, the minute the House takes any action that it does on standards and kicks this over to the Senate for action, yeah, you know, they lose a little bit they of They lose their influence. They, they, they lose control over the flow of, of the process. So I don't know. I don't know how that plays into it. But it's starting to feel a little bit like the House doesn't feel like it has a whole lot of incentive to move all that quickly because, you know, you know they've had the hearings. I think the House members probably have a pretty good idea of what they want to do with the rules and what they want to change, if anything. You know, 
they could have the vote. I mean, they, they, but there may be some tactical reasons to not have the vote if you're if you're the House right now. And I think it could get interesting on both sides of that debate. I've heard some whispers around the State House that some folks are just fine with the House Education Committee continuing to scrutinize and look at these rules over the long term throughout the session uh, for different reasons uh, that might be kind of funny to get into. But so I don't know. But there are ramifications. Uh, the Senate does have some leverage and. You know, does I, I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see what happens next week. And, and things may speed up at that point. But we do know that there are serious funding formula discussions going on behind closed doors. We know that even though the House Education Committee has not acted on the academic standards, we know they are meeting uh, perhaps on an individual basis between Vice Chair Ryan Kirby and some of the individual members to go through what they would like to remove from the standards. So we do know they're talking. They just haven't taken action out in the open yet, um, but it could be coming to a head, and it could be interesting on both sides of the debate for reasons that don't only relate to academic standards, and that might become clear later, but that's sort of the fun political side of things to watch and wonder about that, that I think we really enjoy outside of just the policy implications. No, there's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of uncertainty. I think the intrigue will, will continue into next week. Maybe we'll have a little bit more clarity Certainly, the story will be different next week than it is yeah, this week. Yeah. Because that much we can guarantee something may happen and some, some turn of the screw may, uh, it may take place. I we feel like be there the, for it. it'll be interesting. I'm wondering if the Senate will act next week regardless because of that February 10th deadline. Um, I wonder if the Senate will act next week regardless. And that could be really interesting and that could change the dynamic. And, and, and we should emphasize, I mean, when I talk about the House having leverage, Right now, the House has leverage on the rules process because there seems to be kind of a gentleman's agreement between House education and Senate education to let House Ed take the first crack at the, the academic yeah. standards. But there's nothing binding there, as you as you mentioned. Right. I mean, there's nothing stopping Senate education from, you know, drawing Putting a line. us out of our misery. <laughs> well, or, or, yeah. you know, well, that's one way of looking at it. But <laughs> there's nothing stopping Senate education from drawing its line in the sand and saying, here's what we think should happen with academic standards. Here's our vote. Here's our opinion. House said, now you know where we stand. You yeah. know, do with that what you will. So, uh, hey, it, it's been an interesting four weeks. Week five figures to be interesting. We will be there for the latest on that. But there's been a lot, there's a lot more uh, that we won't get to in this week's podcast, but a lot more you should get to on our website. A lot of good coverage on a variety of topics. I did a little bit of a, a takeout piece, my weekly analysis piece this week. I took a look at some of the numbers on advanced opportunities, on dual credit, interesting numbers from the State Board of Education. Warning, they're confusing. They confused me. I, I had to go back and, and take another run at this analysis. But the bottom line is some interesting numbers about dual credit students and what happens with dual credit students once they get out of high school. Yeah. I try to put those numbers into perspective and, and you know, a lot help, of lawmakers are asking the questions that your article addresses. It's been a big topic at the State House this week in particular. Because the bill for advanced yeah. opportunities, which includes dual credit, a lot of the money for advanced opportunities goes into dual credit, that budget could increase again next year. Both uh, Governor Little and Superintendent DeBarra are saying we need more money to cover advanced opportunities. So there is a budget uh, aspect to it. We try to figure out uh, kind of what the impact is on student performance. Uh, go on rates, uh, you know, you know uh, student retention, college retention rates. 
we try to break that down and put that into some perspective for you. So check that story out at idaho8news.org. Our, our Eastern Idaho reporter, yeah. Devin Bodkin, is continuing to follow the latest with the investigations into those two Blackfoot charter schools. He had a little bit of an update this week, uh, but more may be coming on that story sooner rather than later. And Devin continues to follow it. If you want to get caught up, uh, if you want some background, or if you want to get ready for what... Um, uh, for more news that may be coming in the future. Devin has followed that story uh, for more than a year, and it's an interesting, but it's an investigation into the financial practices of two charter schools that were located in the city of Blackfoot. And Devin and our data analyst, Randy Schrader, uh, have really dug into this and really brought this to the forefront and to the public's attention over the last year plus. And it's been interesting to watch and a uh, little bit of an update that may be sort of a precursor to a larger update uh, that could be coming. Right. The point is they've been on top of the story for more than a year. They've done outstanding work, and we get you up to date a little bit about where the yep. investigation stands. Uh, Sammy Edge, who's been doing some great work covering uh, Latino student issues, uh, Latino student performance. She was at she was a speaker at the uh, Idaho uh, Commission for Hispanic Affairs is annual uh, forum uh, with legislators. Yeah. She spoke. So did State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra. You can see what Ibarra had to say about uh, Latino student performance and the need to narrow achievement gaps. A lot of stuff there, a lot of stuff on our website. Really a lot to get caught up on, and, and we've tried to hit some of the highlights this week on the podcast. Yeah, uh, always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit podcast, breaking down this ever-complicated issue, education policy and education politics. If something confuses you from the session or if you want a little bit more information about something, reach out, and we'll be happy to take a look. But you can reach out. Uh, through the homepage. Uh, we're both on Twitter at our full names, at Clark Corbin, at Kevin Richard. Uh, and if you have something that you're interested in that's going on this session, we can take a closer look or maybe discuss it on a future edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. But we will be back next week. The session is just now heating up. We think it'll get busier, more interesting as it goes, as these things tend to do. But thanks so much for joining us. Always have a lot of fun. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week. <laughs>